today's sermon is being holy in the midst of suffering. Being holy in the midst of suffering. First, first Peter 1 verses 13 through 21 in case you missed it. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you so much for your word. We hunger for it, Lord. We ask, O oh Lord, that as we read it and as we hear it exposited or taught or expounded, that you would make us by your Holy Spirit careful and attentive listeners of your very word to us. And we pray that you would convict us of sin, that you would encourage us to holiness, and that in all of that, that through us, that your glory would be rightly magnified. Help us, Lord, help this preacher, all for your namesake. In Christ we pray, amen. One of the hardest things to do in the midst of suffering is be holy. One of the hardest things to do in the midst of intense suffering is be holy. Let me use myself as a, as a negative example. In several sermons in the past, if you've been going here for any number of time, you may have heard from me that for a very short stint, 15 years ago, back in 2008, that I was... Uh, in Metro's police academy uh, for a very short stint. Um, we're talking like three and a half business days, okay? <laughs> I've been saying a week, I repent. It was a business week, but it was three and a half business days, right? And it's, it's very interesting because it's like, why does this, as, my, as I prepare sermons, why does my mind keep going back to that experience for being such a short season of my life? Well, part of it is because it was just a very bad experience. It was, a, it was my personal failure. And I knew that going into it that it was going to be like a boot camp. That, that was not a secret. They, that's public. That they designed Metro's Academy to be like the Marine Corps. So I knew that intellectually. But I went into that experience grossly underprepared. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of the above. And in that under-preparation for that task ahead, something was exposed in me, and that was that I didn't suffer well. I didn't suffer well. I noticed very quickly that part of the culture of, I don't know if it's all cops or it was just that happened to be the class that I was in, was that there's just a lot of profanity. There's just a lot of vulgarity. But then what I also found was that in my suffering, my small amount of suffering, mind you, it's, it's suffering, but it's relatively small compared to what some of y'all go through, in the high-stress environment that I was in, that I started to sound exactly like the world, I confess to you. I started to let corrupting talk come out of my mouth, where Ephesians 4 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, except only that which is good for building up, right? And we know that it was, it's not just the words, it's, it's where it's coming from. It was a sin in my heart. For the Savior says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's the point of telling you that story of don't do as I do? <laughs> don't do as I did, okay? The point of that illustration is that suffering tempts us to sin. Suffering tempts us to sin. And it doesn't even take very much suffering. You could be cut off on the freeway, and for that short moment, you experience a hatred for that person who treated you so unjustly, which Jesus says is committing murder in your heart, right? You could be so hangry, which means so hungry that you're angry, looking at you, my baby daughter. You're so, you're so hungry that you're angry that you mistreat your loved ones, that you disrespect your wife or your husband or your children because you're cranky, because you don't have enough calories in you. These are small examples. And of course, the larger the suffering gets, the greater the temptation to sin. Is it not when a marriage is on the rocks that the Christian is most tempted to commit adultery? Is it not when the stakes are high and the pressure is on that the Christian is tempted to lie? Is it not when the bills are stacking up and, and the paychecks aren't coming in that the Christian is most tempted to steal 
or to cheat on his taxes. So suffering tempts us to sin. The greater the suffering, the greater the temptation to sin. And what we need to be called to do is to prepare ourselves to be holy. That's what Peter does here for these elect exiles that he's writing to in 1 Peter. He's teaching them not just to be holy, but to prepare for it, to be intentional about being holy in the midst of suffering. And so that's what we're going to look at today and be encouraged to do. And the good news is it doesn't just tell us be holy, but it gives us enough motivation to want to be holy. We don't just need to be holy. We get to be holy by God's grace. Learned that from Pastor Corey this morning. Thank you, brother. It's not just a need to or must. We get to by God's grace. So we'll look at those things in turn. First, we'll spend the first roughly half of this sermon looking at this call to be holy. And then we'll look at three motivations to be holy. Let's look at the first one. The first idea, the first concept we'll look at is this call to be holy. And that's in verses 13 through 16. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's really great to see that in this letter, or really all the letters that are written by the apostles to the church, Christ's sent ones to the church, They usually start with orthodoxy, and then at some point they switch in the book to orthopraxy, which means right doctrine and then right practice. Some books, like for example Ephesians, like half of it is just doctrine. Romans is like more than half. Romans 1 through 12 is all doctrine. And then it switches to talking about what do you do with this great doctrine that we've just heard. But Peter transitions Very quickly, we're already in orthopraxy in this letter, and this is only the second sermon in the series. Last week, we heard some incredible doctrine from him, and now he's telling us going forward in the following weeks, what do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that you have been given a present salvation in a future hope? And so we're seeing now what to do. We're At this point, we're going to just take a look at a couple of phrases in verse 13 and then Later on in the sermon, we'll look back at the rest of it. But notice in verse 13 that these Christians, these elect exiles, were called to prepare their minds for action. Literally, in the Greek, it's to gird up, your, gird up the loins of your mind. That's a strange phrase, and I can understand why the ESV doesn't translate it that way, but they translate it to what it means. But just so you know, that back then, men would wear long robes. That was your, your standard wear. And what they would need to do is they need to roll up their robes and tuck it into their belt for action, whatever it is that they needed to do, whether it was work out in the field or go into battle. They needed to gird up their loins so they could go be intentional about something. We're called to gird up the loins of our minds. We're called to prepare our minds for action. Well, how do we do that? How do we prepare our minds for action? In this phrase, this carries a a connotation of being intentional about doing this. And one of the ways that we can prepare our minds for action is by training it, by training our minds. We often quote 2 Timothy 3, 16 here, uh, 16 and 17, which talk really about how Scripture is sufficient for everything that we need to do and all the holiness that we need to have. One of the benefits that's listed in 2 Timothy 3, 16 that we get from Scripture is that Scripture trains us in righteousness. It trains us in righteousness. What that means is it rewires our brains from our old way of thinking into Christian biblical thinking so that we can start responding instinctively to things because we're trained to do so. Think about uh, training um, uh, an ER nurse. When something happens, when someone comes in and their, their vein is, I don't know, uh, they're just spewing out blood, that nurse is not needing to go look at their manual. They know what to do because they've been trained to do it. And so they're able to just react instinctively and save someone's life. Training in righteousness, which the Bible provides for us, is similar. It's so that not in every possible situation 
we need to say, well, what does this say about that? It's because we know the Bible well enough to say that we need to do a certain thing. So if you're walking on the street and you see someone who's hungry with a sign that says, please, I'm hungry, your instincts, trained by the Bible, may say, go into the store, grab him a bottle of water, get him a sandwich, give it to them, and share Christ with them. Or if your ailing parents start to become dependent and the decision comes down to, do I just abandon them or do I clear out a house and take them in at what would potentially be an inconvenience to my family, being trained in the scripture says, I'm going to honor my father and mother. I'm going to take them in. And so if we will allow our minds to be trained in righteousness, then we can prepare our minds for action, which means that you need to constantly be exposed to the scriptures. This is partly what you're doing now. You are being trained by the Holy Spirit through the word so that in the future you may know how to do something when you need to. That it'll just come to you because you are being rewired in your thinking. But you need to be intentional about that. We need to be intentional about that. And notice there also, they were to prepare prepare their minds and they were to be sober-minded, sober-minded. The idea is that, that you wouldn't allow your mind to be uh, unduly influenced by something, that nothing would have undue influence on your brain, on your way of thinking. What may come to mind when you hear the word sober would be things like uh, um, uh, substances, whether it's alcohol or it's, it's drugs, that would impact your way of thinking so that you're not sober-minded. But, but this extends to beyond just actual sobriety, and it extends to all sorts of things that would impact our way of thinking. All sorts of things that would make us not think like Christ, but think like the way that we used to think, outside of him. We see this kind of lack of sober-mindedness all over the world, do we not? They don't want to be guided by the scriptures. They don't want to be guided by God. They, they want to be guided by their feelings. Or they let their thinking be clouded by actual drugs and alcohol. Or they let their thinking be clouded by the flavor of the day, whatever things are, people are passionate about just in today's environment, where all of a sudden we completely rewire our morality because that's just what everyone is saying. There's peer pressure. There's just outright lies that they allow themselves to be influenced by. The world would say that it's completely normal to think that Elliot Page, formerly Ellen Page, the actress, is now a straight white male and somehow underprivileged. Straight white males are supposed to be the highest of the highest of privileges, they would say. Elliot Page, they say that she is a man, a straight white male, but she is underprivileged. So is she really, in their mind, a man or not? It's, it's just wild. They're not thinking with reason. They're not thinking with biblical truth for sure. And the reality of it is that they are actually just completely drunk off of the devil's juice. I'm not talking about alcohol. I'm talking about his lies. I'm talking about his lies. What he's feeding into this world. Now, it's easy, of course. That's, that's low-hanging fruit. It's very easy to make fun of the world's thinking. But we have that very same tendency in our flesh, right? We allow ourselves to be guided by our own emotions. We allow ourselves to be influenced by the world around us, to, to change our thinking to be more like theirs than Christ's. To paraphrase what Pastor Corey has said, because I'm not brave enough to say it like he does, sin makes you not smart. All right? Sin makes you the opposite of smart. Yes, we are renewed. We have a renewed mind. We have the spirit dwelling in us, but we are still struggling with the flesh. And in our old selves, it doesn't want us to think like we should. So how do we war against that? How do we actually be sober-minded? Well, it's closely related to preparing your minds for action. Not only is it making sure you're getting the good in, but you also got to be careful to keep the bad out, okay? Uh, are you struggling with lust and yet regularly watching television series or streaming series that are TVMA for sexuality and nudity? Are you doing that? That's crazy! 
That's the opposite of smart, right, Pastor Corey? That's the opposite of smart. I struggle with lust, but I'm going to expose myself to things that will fire up my lust. Or perhaps you're struggling with, with singleness and loneliness, and yet all of your weekend you're watching rom-coms, romantic comedies. You are tempting your own discontentment with your circumstances. Or maybe you know you struggle with anxiety with the things that are going on in the world, but despite that, all you do all day is watch the news or read articles about how terrible the world is. Now, entertainment and news are fine. You need to be holy in them, and you need to be wise in them. You have to protect your brain because we still have this tendency to want to not be sober-minded. We have to be intentional about that. So we're to prepare our minds, we are to be sober-minded, and closely related to that is that we would then be holy. It's implied in the text. It's implied in the passage that right thinking leads to right conduct. Right thinking leads to right conduct. Crazy thinking leads to crazy conduct. And so in verse 14, we read this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, We just need to stop at this first phrase, as obedient children, because it really is amazing that Christians are children of God. Amen? Amen? There's a a common mindset out in the world that we're all God's children. You've probably heard that. Maybe you've said it before. They say we're all God's children, but in saying that, you undermine the beautiful revelation of God, like in 1 John 3, 1, that says, see what love the Father has had on us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. Or in the book of John, in the gospel of John, where he says that to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. Or in Ephesians, where it says that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons to himself through Jesus Christ. Not everyone is born a child of God. Everyone who is reborn becomes a child of God. We have been adopted into his family through Jesus Christ, and we say, praise God, that we are allowed to be obedient children. But the focus on this verse, as much as it absolutely lauds this concept of being a child of God, is that we are to be obedient children. If you're a child of God, you ought to be an obedient child. And like an obedient child, verse 14 says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This is the way that we were described in Ephesians chapter 2. This is what the Bible says about you and it says about me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Before Christ, that was you and that was me. Before it could be said, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has given to us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But before that moment, you were thinking just like the world, as guided by the devil. That's true about you and that's true about me. Well, don't go back to that, verse 14. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You didn't perhaps know better before, even though it was a voluntary ignorance. And yet we should not go back to that, but instead, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So as opposed to going back to our old selves and our old way of thinking, just as he, God, who called us is holy, we should be holy in all of our conduct. We're using this word holy a lot. It's in the title, be holy in the midst of suffering. And you might have like a general idea of what that means, but, but perhaps we need to unpack that a little bit more. What does it mean exactly to be holy? Holy does 
is closely related to moral purity. That's definitely for sure. But really, first and foremost, what it is, is it's an otherness. Being holy is being other. So when we sang earlier, holy, 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 and when the angels in heaven sing, holy, 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 what we are exponentially emphasizing is God is other, other, other. That's a great hymn because there's so much in that hymn that is true about God, but it's not true about us. Because though there are many ways that we are like God as image bearers, there's many, many ways that we are not like him. That there is none greater than him. By the way, great book recommendation, None Greater by Matthew Barrett. None Greater by Matthew Barrett. Write it down. Get it from the library. It's very good. It's very good. So he is holy. He is set apart. So even though he is holy, 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 and no man except Christ is holy, 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 yet we are to be holy. We are to be other than the world. We shouldn't look like the world looks, talk like the world does, think like the world thinks. Because the one who called us out of darkness and into light, the one who called us from death into life, he's holy. He's set apart. And he expects us to be set apart, to be different. To make a scripture proof for this in verse, six, verse 16, Peter writes, Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter is quoting what is really said several places in Leviticus. In Leviticus and here, he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And in both Leviticus and here, it carries in it this connotation of, You represent me. As God's people, we ought to represent him rightly. And since he is holy, so his people are to be holy. My parents made, this a keenly, made me keenly aware of this concept growing up. Not in, in the sense of theology, but in the sense of their own reputation. They made me very aware of this idea because every time that I would go to a friend's house, I, I remember clearly my mother's admonition. Son, you represent us at their house. And so when I say admonition, it's don't act a fool, right? Like don't represent us well. Be a good guest. Uh, leave, they said, leave that house better than when you, when you came in. So I understand this concept of, of my being expected to represent my parents well. And this is the same idea when God calls his people to be holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And he expects his people to be holy as well. Because when we are unholy, we misrepresent who God is. Whenever we sin, we misrepresent who God is. And on the other hand, when we do right, when we are holy, then we represent him well and we glorify him. We'll see this in 1 Peter 2 once we get there. In 1 Peter 2 verse 12, where it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How is it that unbelievers would glorify God? Well, we'll leave that to Pastor Corey when he preaches that passage in a couple of weeks. But from now, we'll just suffice it to say that when we act holy, when we do good, when we are like God, it represents our God well as we should. And so we see here this call to be holy, a very clear call for us to be holy. The question and challenge for you this morning is, are you even concerned about being holy in your everyday life? And for many of you, you'll say yes, praise God. But for some of you, perhaps not. Perhaps for you, Christianity is just make, making sure you make it to church every Sunday. But then when you go off into the world, you look exactly like unbelievers do in what you do. You sound exactly like unbelievers do. You just surround yourself with unbelievers, not to evangelize them, but because you're most comfortable around them, because you're just like them. And the challenge for you today is that if that's you, perhaps you're not even a believer in Jesus Christ. Here's, here's what's guaranteed of every believer, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, period, 
solely by faith in Jesus Christ, you are justified. You are declared not guilty. God will look at you and say, it's as if they never sinned. It's as if they lived a perfect life because Christ's righteousness has been put on us. That's guaranteed, praise God. What's also guaranteed is that as you continue to live your Christian life, you will also be sanctified, meaning that you will stop, look, or look less, you'll look less like your, yourself at the beginning here and more like Jesus Christ as you progress through your life. That's guaranteed. What that means then, if that's not what your life looks like, then you need to test yourself to see if you're even in the faith. If you see no shred of holiness or righteousness or even desire to be Christ-like, then you're not Christian. And I say that not to divide from you. I say that to beg you to turn to Jesus Christ and trust in him for salvation. And if you believe in him, then you'll want to be like him. You'll want to obey him. And the spirit in you will guarantee those things, that increasingly you will be made more like Jesus Christ. For we who do say, yes, we do want to be holy. This is just another encouragement for us to keep striving towards that. You need to realize that, yes, even though while God does the work ultimately, we need to strive. Hebrews says as much. It says in Hebrews 10, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You need to work at it. You need to run hard after it. But there's more to this sermon, praise God. Because if you just walk away saying, be holy, be holy, be holy, we say amen to that, but we also need some help, amen? We need some encouragement, some motivation. And praise God by his graciousness that in this passage, he provides plenty of motivation for us to strive for holiness, to be holy in the midst of our suffering. And we'll look at three of those next. The first one is this. The first motivation to be holy is what he will do. What he will do. At the beginning of verse 13, so remember I promised you we'd go back and fill out the rest of that verse. Beginning of verse 13, we see the word, therefore. And as we always encourage you as you're reading your Bible, when you see the word, therefore, you should ask, what's it there for, right? You see the word, therefore, you ask, what's it there for? And in this case, if you look at it, the reason why the therefore is there is that what was said up to this point is what he says, is what he exhorts us to do afterwards is based on. What he said before is what we're supposed to do is based on. And what did he say before? Well, we won't spend a whole lot of time on this because we spent an hour on it last week. But just by way of review, we have a present salvation in God. Amen? We have been by the Father, chosen before all time, foreknown by him. He set his affections on us and said, I'm going to save that person, and then he did. We are set apart by the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. And, and in Christ's blood, we have been sprinkled for holiness and righteousness. He has caused us to be born again. We were dead, and he gave us new life. We haven't seen him but we love him. We haven't seen him yet physically, but we rejoice with this inexpressible joy and we've obtained the outcome of our faith. We've been saved, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a salvation that was foretold from long ago. Even angels are amazed by it and so are we. So we have the present salvation. We also have this future hope that incredibly there is even more grace that waits us ahead. That when Christ returns, that when the trump resounds and the Lord descends, even so we'll say it is well with our souls, especially then, because we'll be grateful that he has finally come back to bring us home and to restore everything as it should be. And we'll be rid of these sinful and weak and perishable bodies and given imperishable bodies to receive our imperishable inheritance. So even though we're suffering, we have those things. And in light of those things that we looked at last week, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Earlier we said that we should prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. But really, in this verse, 
Those are really just the manner in which we do something else. You see that in the fact that those words end in ing, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, we call those participles for you grammar nerds, doing those things, we are to, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to set our hope on that. How do you set your hope on something? Well, that's where we rely on those participles. We do it by preparing our minds for action. We do it by being sober-minded. So applying this principle of training our minds to think that way, to have the long view, it takes some intentionality to do that. One of the, or one of the organizational habits that I have is that once a day, I try to look at the calendar at the week ahead. And once a month, I try to look, I'm sorry, once a week, I try to look at four weeks ahead. And the idea is that I wouldn't just be so absorbed with today and the tasks at hand, but that I would have a, an understanding of things that are coming next. Imagine if we did that for not a, a day or a week or a month, but 10,000 years. If we made it a habit to look ahead at what God has said he will do, and we're intentional about that, how would that affect our way of thinking? How would that affect the way that we suffer? Will we suffer well and be holy if we have the long view? Well, that's what Peter's getting at here. In light of everything, we need to prepare our minds and be sober-minded to set our hope fully. The idea there behind fully is it's like, imagine a football team who at the beginning of the season they're like, well, if we get to the playoffs, that's great. But let's just have fun. They're probably not going to make it. Versus that team that says, we're going to the championship. That's what they're thinking on week one. And every single day, they are thinking that way. Every single practice, every single game, they're much more likely to get there. Likewise, if we would just be half-hearted in our future hope, in hoping in future grace, that's not likely to affect us the way that it should. It's not likely to produce in us a holiness. So we need to be all in on this idea that there is a future grace that awaits us. We need to set our hope fully, verse 13, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is just amazing to me. We have received grace upon grace already. Amen? If you're a Christian, you were dead and you're now alive. You were on the way to hell, but now you are on the way to the presence of our Savior forever and ever, and it's guaranteed by him. He's going to make that happen. And yet, there is still more grace that is coming. It just blows my mind how gracious and kind our God is. And remember that grace that will be brought to us that we don't have yet, though it's assured to us, that the revelation of Jesus Christ, i.e. when he returns, is when we finally see death defeated. When we rise from the grave victorious and our spirits who have been with Christ are reunited to them, just like we talked about last week. And then it will be said, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's incredible grace that awaits us. And then we will inherit the new heavens and the new earth to dwell there with our Lord and Savior forever and ever. Can you set your hope fully on that? If you set your hope fully on that, you will be more likely to suffer well. So that's the first thing. We are to set our minds on what he will do. Our second motivation, to set our minds on what he can do. Set our minds on what he can do. And for that, we go down to verse 17. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So if we call on him as father, again, this ties very closely to this idea, you shall be holy for I am holy. So if we call on God as father, which again is amazing grace that we are allowed to call him father, but in this idea, there is more to it than just we're children. There is a, there is a fearsome aspect of being able to call God Father. 
And the fearsome aspect of being able to call God Father is that because he is a good father, he will not let you get away with sin in this temporal sense. You're forgiven of all your sins, but he's not just going to let you continue on in your sins and continue on like the rest of the world because he loves you too much to let you do that. Parents, you understand that. When your kids are doing something wrong, you don't just say, well, I love them, so I'm just going to let them do that. You correct them. You discipline them. You let them experience hardship. Hebrews chapter 12 unpacks this a bit more for us. So keep your finger in 1 Peter and let's go to Hebrews 12 or just attentively listen. In Hebrews 12 verses 4 through 11, we read this. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. And your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, and then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen. Just a few observations of this text. The first one is that some of your suffering that you experience is because of your sin. It's because God is disciplining you for your sin. It's, it's hard to, and we, and we shouldn't, like the Pharisees do, try to tie every particular instance of suffering to some sin that you did, and yet the fact remains that God intends for suffering to discipline you because of your sin. And that should strike a certain fear in us that God, our loving Father, disciplines us. The same kind of fear that the child waiting at home, because mama said, wait till your dad gets home. That they're anticipating the loving discipline of their father. So some of our suffering is directly related to our sin. And God disciplines us. And that, brothers and sisters, is a very, very good thing. If you do not experience the discipline of God, if you do not experience his chastening, then you're not his child. If you experience discipline from God, if you are chastened for your sin, then that's evidence that you are a child of God. And that means that he loves you. And because he loves you, and because he is your loving father, he will not let you go with sin undisciplined. He will allow you to experience suffering as a result of your sin. And for that we say, thank God. But what shall we say then? Shall we sin more that the loving discipline of God may abound? May it never be. I'm just co-opting Paul's language there. But may it never be. We should be glad for discipline, but we shouldn't try to be disciplined. Parents don't like to discipline their kids. They do it because they love them, but they would rather the children just obey in the first place. It's like with the sacrifices in the Old Testament. I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to obey. So why would we sin and incur the discipline of God on us rather than just be motivated by knowing that he disciplines us and therefore live holy lives? Let's go back to uh, 1 Peter. I told you to keep your finger there and I did not, so bear with me. <laughs> there we are. So he, we see that he is the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And again, that is great. That is a great thing that God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Good parents do that. So if they, if they for example, if a, if a parent, for example, 
disciplines harshly a child for a minor infraction, but then the other kid who does some egregious disobedience, they just let them go. What do we call that? Bad parenting. That's not okay. They need to judge all of their children impartially and fairly and discipline them in what is appropriate for what they're doing. God is not a bad parent. God is one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, and he disciplines us accordingly. And if we call on him as father, knowing that he judges impartially, then verse 17 says, conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves with fear. The word that's translated there, fear, is the Greek word phobos. And the only reason I tell you that is because it's, from, it's the word from which we get phobia. The word phobos can mean either dread or t- dread and terror, or it could mean respect and reverence. And sometimes people overcorrect and say, well, this is only talking about respect and reverence. But truly, God is worthy of both meanings of that word. Remember in Exodus chapter 4, where Yahweh introduces himself to Moses for the first time, Moses hides his face. And in Revelation 1.17, when John, the one whom Jesus loved, first sees the risen Savior or the vision of him, he just falls down as if he were dead. Even the most righteous and favored men trembled in the presence of God. And yes, God did speak to Moses, the Bible says, mouth to mouth. In other words, he spoke to him like he spoke to no one else. He spoke to him as a friend. And in, and in Revelation, it's beautiful. John falls over as if dead, and Jesus puts his right hand on him and says, fear not. I hope, I hope, I hope that happens to me, because I know I'm falling over dead when I see Jesus. But I want to see his hand on me, and he says, fear not. Even though those are true, it doesn't change the fact that God was deserving or worthy of those reactions. A good illustration of this would be like a lion. Let's say that right now we heard a lion's roar, which sounds a bit like Pastor John Pretlow, roar, right? So we hear a lion's roar out in the foyer, and then a lion pounces in here. Chaos would ensue. Because rightly, we understand that lions are terrifying and they could tear us apart if they want to. So we would be running around terrified, fearful, dreading this lion. But let's say after a while, we, the lion doesn't attack us. The lion even seems to favor us. Then we'll feel more and more comfortable in the lion's presence. But not quite so comfortable that you'd go up and hit it, right? A lion is a good picture of the type of dread and terror and, and reverence and respect that we ought to give God who created all the lions, all right? Um, Chronicles of Narnia, this is, a, this is actually, this idea is in there because Aslan, who is a lion, who is the king, is representative of Christ. He, he, st- he stands as the Christ figure in the story. And Lucy, the young girl who, with her siblings, went through this enchanted cupboard, asks this talking beaver, I don't have time to explain it all, you, you read it, he asks this talking beaver, well, I thought it was a man. I didn't know he was a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, of course he's not safe. Who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's the king, you see. That is how we interact with our fearsome God. He, holy, 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 wrathful against all sin, Savior of all the world who believe in him, deserves us to fall on our face before him in dread and terror. And yet he comforts us by saying, fear not. He comforts us, like in Hebrews where it says, we can now walk into the throne room with confidence. That is God's amazing grace on us, and yet we should still conduct ourselves with fear. We should still conduct ourselves knowing that God, our strong lion, is watching everything that we do, and he judges impartially. And we're to do this throughout the time of your exile. Remember from last week, we are exiles. 
We are chosen by God to be exiles here in this world, and there will come a day, friends, be encouraged, where we will sin no more, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. I love singing that with you, because I look forward to that day, but that day is not yet. You are still in your exile. You still have sin. And so we need to look at the fact that God judges impartially and thus conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. Do you fear God as you should? Have you taken his grace and kindness on you for granted? Have you taken the reality that he will not destroy you and thrown that back at his face with your sin? Don't do that, friends. Fear the God who sees everything that you do and will discipline you and chasten you with suffering to bring you into holiness, into Christ-likeness. So that's our second motivation. First, it was what he will do. The second one is what he can do. And the third one is what he has done. What he has done. Verse 18 through 21. Let's look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So Peter, quite pastorally, right in the very same breath that he admonishes the church, don't test God. He's going to discipline you. In the very same breath, he reminds us of what God has done for us. Knowing that you were ransomed. What does it mean that you were ransomed? It means that you were freed from your bondage by the form of a payment. God purchased you out of your bondage to sin, out of your bondage to Satan. He paid for you to redeem you from that. Why would you go back to that? Why would you go back to the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers? He purchased us. He saved us from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Feudal ways is otherwise translated empty, vain ways of life. It's just meaninglessness. Strong's Concordance adds to its definition practically godlessness, and that's helpful. Because if your former ways were meaningless, they were empty, what that also means is that you didn't have God. And you were on your way with your meaningless way of living towards the wrath of God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God ransomed us from that. Yes, we inherited it from our forefathers, meaning godlessness since the fall has been passed down from generation to generation. And especially for the Gentiles who didn't have the law of God among them, they, they just inherited the foolishness and the sin of their forefathers, just like we did. But we were ransomed for that, from that. God paid a price to get us out of that. So why would we run back to it? The price was intense. Verse 18 ends with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Silver and gold, we need to rightly understand, were valuable in that time. Back then, you couldn't just print more money or just write stimulus checks, right? They, they actually carried monetary value, and that's what people used in exchange. Jesus was uh, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which is roughly four months' worth of wages. And even though they were valuable, they're perishable. God did not spend money to buy us. There's not enough money in the world that could buy a sinner like you and me. And so the price was greater. God couldn't and didn't throw money at the problem. He spent something much more precious. Verse 19. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Brothers and sisters, God didn't buy you with money. He gave his only son for you. He sent his only begotten son to save us, and, and our Savior went like a lamb for us. His blood was precious and spilt for us, and it was like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This evokes to our memory the Passover lamb. The Passover, the very first Passover, whether you've read Exodus or just at least watched Prince of Egypt, is, 
in, when Jesus, when God is about to send the 10th and final plague, because Pharaoh's heart has been thus far hardened with the first nine plagues, in this 10th and final plague, he is about to send the angel of death to kill every firstborn child in all of Egypt. So what the Israelites had to do by God's instruction was to put on their doors the blood of a lamb. And whoever's door had the lamb's blood on it, the angel of death passed over their house and did not kill their firstborn child. Every year after that, they would celebrate this feast of the Passover to remind themselves of this incredible act of God. And whenever they they would celebrate it, every family who could afford one needed to buy and bring a lamb to the uh, temple to sacrifice it in, in memory of this. Now, I know my sinful heart. I could see myself in that time frame being like, well, one of our lambs has three legs. Let's bring that one. Well, that lamb is ugly. Let's bring that one. But that was unacceptable. The only lambs that were acceptable were the ones that were without blemish, without spot. You couldn't just bring a second grade sacrifice to celebrate the Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He lived a perfect life. You ever wonder why he waited until 33 years into his life to be our sacrifice? Could he not, as a sinless baby, just have been sacrificed for us at that time? No. Because for 33 years in his life, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He lived the perfect life that we could not live as our perfect, spotless, and unblemished lamb. And because of that, he was the worthy sacrifice that could stand in our place. All of our sinfulness went on him on the cross, and all of his righteousness went on all we who believe. If you'll follow the analogy... The angel of death passes over all the doors of those who trust in him. He is our Passover lamb. His blood was spilt for us. This was part of the plan all along. Verse 20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This wasn't plan Z or plan Y. It was plan A all along. When Peter is preaching to the crowds, in Acts, he says that, that he was handed over according to the definite foreknowledge of God. This was his plan all along. That was, is how he saved you. He set his affections on you from before the foundation of the world. He planned to save you, and then he did it. It was made manifest in the last times. It was in the fullness of time when Christ appeared just at the right time. And praise God that he did. Because if Christ did not do that, if Christ did not come and die on the cross for sinners like you and me, then every single one of us would still be on our hell-bound race. And there'd be nothing to stop us. There is no amount of good that we could do to prevent that from happening. But praise God, it has been made manifest in these last times for our sake. It was for you, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's through Christ that we're believers in God. Lots of people say they believe in God, but those who believe in God outside of Christ don't really believe in him. They don't know him. He doesn't know them. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you may say, well, that doesn't seem very fair Fair is that he doesn't send a way at all. The fact that he sent one way, simply faith in Jesus Christ, is an amazing grace to us and a revelation of his grace to the whole world and his mercy. So we're believers in God through Jesus Christ. Verse 21, he emphasizes again, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Remember from last week in verse 3, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now last week we emphasized the aspect of the fact that he's been risen from the dead is a, for, uh, is a promise that we too will be raised from the dead, right? It guarantees that we too will be raised from the dead. But here the emphasis is a bit different. 
The fact that he raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God means that because he is raised from the dead, we can rightly have good confidence in him. If Jesus promised to save his people and he promised that he would rise from the grave and he went to the cross and he died and he stayed dead, that would be a problem for us. 1 Corinthians 15 says that if Christ is not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins and your faith is futile. So there's a way of thinking out there. It's like, well, if this turns out not to be true, it's okay because we lived a good life. Don't think that way. The Bible says that you are the most to be pitied if you think that way. If you have this confidence that you're going to be raised forever and ever and it's not true, you're pitiable. But the good news is that he is raised from the dead. There's plenty of evidence that he has been raised from the dead. If they wanted to quash Christianity, all they would have had to do was produce a body. And with all the resources of the Jewish leadership and the Roman Empire, they could not produce Christ's body because it's not there. It's up there. He is at the right hand of the Father. And because we know that, we have our faith and hope in God. That's what he's done for us. He has purchased us from those old ways that were leading into our own destruction. The way that he purchased us was through the precious blood of his son, our lamb who was without blemish or spot. And that was part of his plan for you who believe in him all along. So, our three motivations, what he will do, that he will bring our glorification, give us these new bodies to live with him forever in the new heavens and new earth. What he can do, which is as a loving father, put you through suffering to discipline you. And what he has done, which has purchased us by the blood of Jesus Christ, should these things not motivate us to be holy? The answer, of course, is yes. But we're forgetful. We're leaky, right? We forget so much. That's why we constantly need to prepare our minds for action. We need to be sober-minded so that we don't forget. That's why you need to take being here seriously. I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, right? But you need to take church seriously. People are very flippant about the assembly of the saints on the Lord's Day. They're like that TV character who says, I wouldn't miss it for the world, but if something else came up, I would definitely miss it. Right? People don't, some people, don't even plan their vacations around the Lord's Day. If you're going to go on vacation on a Sunday, make sure that you have a good church that you're going to go to to be encouraged. Or better yet, plan it to go on Monday or to come back on Saturday so that you could be with God's people on the Lord's Day. In Hebrews 10, that that strong admonition that everyone uses that you need to go to church, it says, do not forsake the assembly of the saints. But what we're missing in the context is it's because you're going through suffering. You're suffering, you're experiencing persecution Don't not go to the assembly of the saints. You need it. But people treat church attendance flippantly. It's as if it's not a big deal. And sometimes when they're here, even against my constant behest, I walk out there and I see people just chatting during the sermon. I'm sorry being so animated. I'm sorry. But what are you doing out there chatting about nonsense? The gospel is being preached in here. Do you think you don't need that? You got too much gospel in your life? I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Let me get let me get off my I shouldn't be so self self-righteous, all right? Cuz I struggle with this too. I struggle with these same things too. It's hard sometimes to pay attention during preaching. It's hard sometimes to want to come to church because we're sinners. But we need it. It's why we take church seriously. It's why we take everything that we do as a church, whether it's core seminars or 11 o'clock or 1.30 or D groups or any other form of fellowship and learning that we do, we take it seriously because we are forgetful. We need to be constantly reminded of what he will do, what he can do, and what he has done. The only time we're unholy is when we forget one or all of those things. You don't sit there and think, oh, what God has done for me. What amazing things he will do for me. And the fact that he disciplines me. And still choose something unholy. Not in your right mind. So we need to constantly be preparing our minds for action. Being sober minded. Being around the church family as much as you possibly can. 
being in the word as much as you possibly can, that you might not sin in the midst of your suffering and thus dishonor the God who has called you. Dishonor the God who has given you incredible grace. But again, it's not just something we must do. It's something we get to do. Do you think that being holy is a burden on you? No. Those who strive for holiness are are being made in the image of Christ, who is the exact imprint of God's nature, according to Hebrews 1.3, find it to be the most delightful experience in the world. Is there anyone else who is tired of their sin? Is there anyone else who wants to leave that old self behind and become more like Jesus Christ? Then set your mind on these things. Be intentional about it. Be purposeful. And God is going to use that. The Holy Spirit in you is going to use what you know to change your heart and to change your attitudes and your actions. Sermon in a sentence. Motivated by what he will do, what he can do, and what he has done, we are to be holy in the midst of suffering. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's ask him to help us. Father, forgive us for our unholiness. There is so much in our lives, Lord, that, have, that are contrary to your character, that are quite the opposite of holy, holy, holy. Forgive us, Father, for our many sins and help us to be motivated by what you will do and what you can do and what you have done to make war on our sin, to take it seriously, to put on your armor every single day and fight. We're so grateful, Lord, that unlike Satan's religions, we're not doing this to earn your favor. We're doing it because you have given us your unlimited favor forever and ever. Thank you for that. And help us to respond with an active gratitude for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.